and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photographs to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash IBAW to go to the new In Black and White page and click on any article to begin. A young sergeant, a 24-year-old by the name of John Perdue, the order was stop her or sink her. The pilot that had been taken aboard the ship had a physical altercation with the captain at the helm. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Today on Remembrance Day, we tell the little-known story of the man who fired the first shot of World War I. The first shot was fired not on the battlefields of Europe, as you might expect, but rather a windswept gun emplacement on the tip of the Mornington Peninsula. For this podcast, we welcome back Melbourne journalist and history buff Jamie Duncan to tell the story of John Perdue, the 24-year-old army sergeant who fired the first shot of the Great War. Great to have you back on the podcast, Jamie. Now, this story just seems impossible to believe. I'm sure most people would have no idea that the first shot of World War I was actually fired by a Victorian at Point Nepean on the Mornington Peninsula. Oh, it's true, and it's a great way to win a bet at the pub. So true. So how did it all come about? It was a matter of timing. Um, war was declared just on midnight on the on the 4th of August 1914 in, in London. Britain declared war on, on Germany. As a result, Australia was um, part of the British Empire and was uh, was in the war. The only thing was that uh, midnight London time was, in fact, 10 a.m. the next day in, in Melbourne. And there was, a, um, there was a German freighter, a ship called the SS Foltz. It was a pretty common sight in Australian ports. It had commonly visited Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane. It was uh, it was charged with exchanging goods between Germany and and Australia. So this was simply a cargo ship, not a military ship? No, no, it was a cargo ship. When the captain of the ship, Wilhelm Kulken, um, discovered that war had been declared, he must have felt a sense of duty and responsibility to get home and preserve the uh, preserve the ship, because it was uh, it was common for vessels to be uh, captured by the opposing sides as uh, as war broke out. So he and the uh, the crew were at Victoria Dock, and they decided to uh, get out of Dodge. They decided to, to to leave pretty quickly. This aroused the suspicion of the uh, of the authorities. The uh, the faults picked up a pilot from the port of Melbourne, Captain Montgomery Robinson, at Williamstown, and then they steamed down the bay towards uh, Port Phillip Heads. So this was the normal procedure at the time, was it? So you'd pick up a local pilot who knew the right way to get out of the heads and then you'd drop off the pilot once you were out safely through the heads. Yeah, and that's still the case today. So they, they had the pilot aboard. They were steaming down the bay, making way as quickly as possible. In the meantime, um, the orders came through from um, from Melbourne. Um, they had to be relayed through the fort at uh, at Queenscliff um, to get the message to the uh, gun emplacement at Fort Nepean to, to stop the faults. And the order was stop her or sink her. So the uh, the, the message was uh, was relayed from Queenscliff across to Fort Nepean. And there was a uh, there was a crew at, at the gun emplacement there that included a uh, a young sergeant, a twenty four year old by the name of John Perdue. And they were they were given the orders to to stop the faults. Um, they initially signalled the ship to uh, to to halt. And when it didn't uh, when it didn't stop, Perdue was ordered to uh, 
fire a, uh, a round across the bow from his um, six-inch cannon. What, what was the purpose of Fort Nepean before war broke out? Well, there was always a fear in Australia that there would be some kind of invasion. So Fort Nepean was a uh, was a base of the Royal Australian Garrison Artillery, and it was there to to protect the to protect the port and to protect Melbourne. So what happened next? Well, Robinson, the pilot that had been taken aboard the ship, then had a um, a physical altercation with the uh, the captain at the helm, urging him to stop. And he, he made it very, very clear that uh, if they were if they were shooting at the boat, the next shot would uh, would destroy the ship, and that would be the end of uh, that would be the end of everybody. So um, the captain was prevailed upon to stop a, uh, a small gunboat, which had been regarded as a bit of a joke in Melbourne. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, apparently a tiny little vessel that uh, people used to mockingly say, oh, here, yeah, there it is, there's the gunboat that's going to save us all. That turned up on the scene and the, uh, the, the false was, uh, was taken to Portsea. Everybody was disembarked and as, as the crew feared, they were, uh, they were interned in a, in, a, in a prison camp for the, for, for, the, uh, for, the, for the rest of the war. So would this have been a tricky shot for Purdue? I spoke to an historian at the Australian War Memorial about this, Dr Malia Hampton. Uh, and she said that it was a it was a tricky shot because uh, there was only a only a narrow range to in, in which to fire, and because the the two the two land masses um, either side of the heads are so close together, Purdue found himself having to fire towards land. So if he'd shot a, a little high, the projectile that he shot may have hit land on the uh, on the other side, and may have and he was shooting in the general Queenscliff direction. So uh, so it uh, it could have been. Uh, it could have been tricky had he have missed. So how did Robinson react after this shot was fired? Well, he was um, he was obviously terrified. And in trying to stop Culkin from continuing through the heads, he and Culkin ended up in a, uh, in a physical altercation. They were having a fight at the, uh, at the helm of the faults, Robinson um, urging him to stop the vessel. Culkin obviously had no intention to do that. He was, um, he was heading out the, uh, out the heads and into open ocean and safety. But Robinson was able to convince him that continuing would be a bad idea because the, uh, the next shot would hit the faults midship and that, that would be the end of the whole thing. Now, what exactly was the ship carrying? Well, that's not entirely clear. There's uh, a lot of reports down through the years that it may have been carrying German diplomats. There was a, a suggestion that it had the ability to run as a as a gunship and may have had four-inch guns on board that would turn it from a merchant vessel into some sort of raider travelling around the Pacific. All that Malia Hampton could research on the cargo that was on the ship was uh, was wire and fencing material and uh, and things of that nature. But there's been reports that there are all kinds of contraband aboard and possibly also enough uh, enough coal to get the faults all the way to South America without having to stop. Its intended next port of call was going to be Sydney, but uh, when war intervened, the suggestion was that it had an awful lot more coal on board than it needed to get to Sydney, but uh, none of that's really clear. Now, strangely enough, it was reported at the time by some newspapers that the ship actually got away. Yeah, the uh, reports initially were incorrect. It was suggested that the shot was fired across the bow. John Perdue uh, wasn't named in, in any of those reports. He came to prominence later. But it was suggested the uh, the shot had been fired, but uh, the faults slipped through the net and uh, was able to get through the heads and out into uh, out into Bass Strait. That, of course, wasn't the case, and the reports were, were corrected some days later. And what happened to the ship after it was taken? Well, it was renamed the Barara and became a, uh, a vessel in the Royal Australian Navy. It carried troops to and from the, the Middle East, horses as well. At least one point, it was uh, it was carrying Turkish prisoners of war from uh, from the uh, from the battlefield in Gallipoli, uh, and it served out the war as the HMT Barara. It was later turned back into a uh, into a merchant vessel, 
and, and eventually it was wrecked off Vancouver in 1937. And what do we know about John Perdue going back to the beginning? What do we know about his early life? Well, John Perdue was born in, in Camperdown, down in the Western District in, in 1890. His parents were farmers uh, and he lived for a while at Barwon Downs, which is um, you know, in the general Colac area and also in Werribee before the, before the family settled in West Gippsland. He was educated at the Neerham State School and joined the uh, joined the army around uh, around 1912. He became a member of the Royal Australian Garrison Artillery and he was sent to Port Nepean and, and it was obviously there on the uh, on the day of the famous shot. And he went on to serve overseas uh, and became an expert in artillery. Something that was very very useful to Australia as the uh, as the years went on. Now unfortunately, uh Perdue's military record is archived, we have it, um but it hasn't been um digitized yet and it hasn't been released to the public and it would take a um, uh, quite a search in order to find all of that material. However, we do know that uh, he served overseas. He served in France. He became an expert in uh, in siege batteries, which is a form of artillery in which the artillery is placed a fair way back from the front. It's often hidden behind uh, hills, and it's used to fire upon the enemy front in order to help the infantry, your infantry, make territorial advances. It was a pretty new field um, at, at the time, and uh, Perdue became quite an expert in it. He trained a lot of younger soldiers uh, in that field and served out the war in France. He married in London in 1918, and he returned to Australia in late 1919. Um, he was still in the army, and he served for a time at, um, at uh, Queenscliff, um, which, of course, was you know, a seeing distance from, uh, from Fort Nepean, where he'd fired the famous shot years earlier. He studied chemistry and uh, metallurgy at the University of Melbourne, and he later uh, went to Woolwich Ordnance College in London, a place where he had uh, done some training when he was in the... Uh, uh, when he was serving overseas, and he received some further training on munitions inspection. By 1940, Perdue was an inspector with the government's munitions supply board. Um, that was obviously a, a very important position given that uh, the war was underway. So overseeing the quality and supply of, uh, of munitions to the armed forces was, uh, was critical at that point. In 1944, he took command of the Department of Inspections and Munitions. Uh, that's a role in which he oversaw Australia's munitions manufacturing, and he was responsible for more than 8,000 workers in a role that was obviously vital to Australia's war effort. He was um, so well recognised in the field of artillery and munitions that he uh, he received an OBE. He was, uh, he was admitted to the Order of the British Empire in 1952 and he retired in 1955. So what rank was he at the end? At the end he was a colonel. So he'd risen uh, through the ranks right up, to, uh, right up to colonel, which is obviously a very senior position. And after that amazing career, he's actually settled in retirement in Anglesey. Yes, he, uh, he obviously loved the coast. He, uh, he settled in, in Anglesey and there's a, uh, a portrait of, uh, of John Perdue in full dress uniform um, displayed at the Anglesey RSL where, where apparently he was, uh, he was an active member. Um, he died in, in 1980. And he was 89 years old. Did he ever talk about the fact that he'd fired the first shot in World War I? Well, according to um, Dr. Hampton, he liked to tell his family that he fired the first shot um, for Britain during the war, but they didn't really believe him, and she was she was quite tickled by that very idea. Perdue had three grandchildren. Um, it was uh, John Perdue, Carolyn Smith, and Louise Nicholl. Uh, they were all invited to take part in a uh, 100th anniversary ceremony at uh, at Fort Nepean um, on the 5th of August 2014. And they have said that their grandfather was a very strong individual. He's very army, very correct, very stern. It wasn't an era in which they, they talked a lot with their parents or their grandparents. You just didn't sit down and have a, a conversation with your elders like that. But over the years, they became aware of their grandfather's significance uh, and that, that historical moment. They were quite pleased to have that as part of the family history. So what do you think the whole incident says about Australia's relationship with Britain at the time? 
We know that um, John Perdue fired that shot, but there's an awful lot about why he, he fired the shot. Obviously, he was following all the orders came down from Melbourne. They went to Queenscliff. They were relayed to Fort Nepean. There was a team of between seven and ten soldiers there, including three on the gun that Perdue fired, um, that were all doing their jobs and all responsible. John Perdue has got, has got the modern accolade of, of being, being the person that fired the first shot. But it says a great deal about the relationship between Britain and Australia, That in that Britain declared war. Communications at the time weren't that great, but when the word came through, Australia was considered automatically at war, very much part of the British Empire. And all of these people in the, the chain of command that ended up stopping the faults did their jobs very quickly and very diligently because they considered themselves um, very much a part of the empire and, and considered it their duty to, uh, to do what they did that day. So why do you think this story of where the first shots of the war were fired has been largely lost over time? Well, the, the story of, of, of when and where the first shot was fired, there was, there was some debate about that, but that didn't really start until the, uh, until the 1920s or thereabouts. And even then, it was it was couched in the context that there was a there was a team of people that was responsible for that. John Purgey didn't really um, come up in those in those early discussions, and it's 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 perhaps a, a modern idea that um, we had to hone in on the individual who actually pressed the button and fired the shot. Having said that, though, I think part of the reason that the story was uh, was lost over time is that there were there were so many horrific events that occurred, so many horrors that occurred in the years following that uh, that that first shot. So many things that defined Australia and scarred Australia as a nation. That's such great loss and such tragedy along the way. If you want to read more, you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes to this podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Al Tynan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to support this podcast and be notified when each episode comes out, make sure you hit the subscribe button. doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Listener.